Welcome to Utopian Horizons. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of Utopian Horizons, a podcast about utopias real and imaginary. This episode is about the film Blade Runner. I think when Blade Runner 2049 came out, I tweeted something saying I should probably try and release something Blade Runner related to, you know, capitalise on the interest in it in some way, but that's something I didn't do. But um, Troy, who is very kindly one of my Patreon subscribers, suggested that I should do it anyway. So here I am, a mere, I don't know, three months or so after uh, Blade Runner 2049 came out with with something Blade Runner related. Uh, This is about the original Blade Runner, by the way, not Blade Runner 2049. Uh, So joining me to talk about the film is Professor Will Brooker. He's a professor at Kingston University. And in the past, he's edited a book about Blade Runner called The Blade Runner Experience. Uh, Obviously, Blade Runner is an incredibly influential film when we're thinking about dystopias as well it's particularly influential in terms of its dystopian vision i think aesthetically visually is is particularly influential that's one reason i've decided to do it uh, also i thought it'd be quite a nice companion for the neuromancer episode that we did um neuromancer and blade runner being the two kind of founding texts of, of cyberpunk so hopefully it'll work as a nice um, companion episode to that before we get on to the conversation i just wanted to touch on a couple of things that are coming up with the podcast there'll probably be one more episode by the end of the year uh probably be philip another philip k dick one on the man in the high castle i had intended to also have one up on bioshock infinite by the end of the year but um my pc broke basically i had a problem with my pc It has taken me over a month to work out what the problem is. I've been going back and forth on on various things. I think it's finally being diagnosed and should be fixed soon, which means I can play the game and uh, do the episode. But until then, I I won't be able to do it. And that delay has meant that it's probably a bit short nose for me to get the episode done this year. But that'll that'll probably be coming early next year. Um, I generally don't talk about stuff that's coming up on the podcast specifically just because there's been a few times where I thought I've had stuff locked in and then it hasn't happened for various reasons but I'm going to mention some stuff anyway and hopefully they won't fall through so as I said Bioshock Infinite should be coming up also should be an episode on Ghost in the Shell next year I've got a few guests who've agreed to come on the podcast but we haven't agreed specifics of what we're going to be talking about yet so I can't really can't really say much more about those As it's coming into the end of the year, I thought it might be a nice time to sort of ask people about stuff that they might want to be covered in the podcast um, that next year. So I don't know whether it'd be a good idea for me to set up like a Google Doc or something where people could just go on and like, you know, write stuff down on on stuff they'd like to see on the podcast. I don't know if that's if that's a good idea or not. Uh, Obviously, people could just you can just uh, email me Utopian Horizons pod, tweet me at Utopian Horizons with any ideas of stuff you'd like to be covered. That's fine, too. Obviously, if you're a Patreon subscriber, let me know and I'll try and give priority to stuff that you want to be covered, giving us your kindly giving me um, some money. But yeah, if any of you uh, have any ideas of stuff you'd like to be covered, then then please do let me know one way or another let me know if the google doc thing's a good idea i'll have a have a think about that there might be difficulty in doing some of them obviously it depends on some things i may feel i don't have the the knowledge to to cover in some way or you know also there's the the guest thing it's about often it's about just being able to find the right guest for the subject which sometimes i may be able to do sometimes not but let me know and i can look into it 
and see what I can do. Also, I will say what I always say. Um, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you've enjoyed it. And if you could give me a rating and review if you like the podcast, that would be massively, massively helpful. If you feel compelled to support the podcast financially to help me keep doing this, then you can do that at patreon.com slash utopian horizons. Um, that's enough of all that. On to my conversation with Will. Joining me now is Will Brooker, professor at Kingston University. Thank you very much for joining me, Will. You're very welcome. And the subject he's driven me to talk about today is the 1982 film Blade Runner, directed by Ridley Scott and based on the Philip K. Dick novel Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. I should probably talk a little bit about versions. Anything I will be referring to will be from the director's cut because that's the only version that I've seen but um, obviously there are quite a few different versions of Blade Runner I just wondered if that's something you might want to talk a bit about first because I know that you've you've written about Blade Runner it's various different versions um, sort of beyond just the technical details of what bits are in what films uh, well there's the director's cut is 91 I think and I believe the final cut is 2005 but I think they're I mean fans will be able to make distinction between them they're pretty similar compared to the 82 cut. Um, I think they're actually far superior. Anything beyond the director's cut, I think, is an entirely different film from the 82 version. I noticed, I saw that you'd, um, you'd written an article somewhere about the... It's an article which it was published. It's about the, the final cut. It's about the final cut on DVD, which contains things like outtakes and rehearsals and alternate scenes. Really what I was writing about there is the idea of how we remember things and how that ties into the, the plot of Blade Runner and the ideas within Blade Runner, like when Ridley Scott, in, in every cut, I think it is, um, playing around with sound and vision. For instance, with Rachel's photograph that Becky picks up, which moves very, very briefly. And I think if you're watching that in the cinema, we, we might, might wonder what we've seen. And there's where, first scene where Holden is interviewing Leon, there's a line which is slightly different from when Deckard replays it on his car stereo when he was driving around. So that's at least two points in the original film where I think we're encouraged to wonder if we heard right and if we saw right. So the film is about memory in many ways. Yeah, obviously that's uh, something we can uh, we can come on to to talk about in, in detail, I think. Could you tell us a bit about just how influential this, this film has been? I'd say it is probably the most influential science fiction film since Frenchland Metropolis, which I believe is 1927 in terms of the look of the science fiction city in particular. Like thematically, plot-wise, perhaps not so much, but its visuals, I, I think it is highly influential in terms of how films have imagined the future city. Like, you can, you can see it in Fifth Element, for instance. You can see it in Star Wars Phantom Menace in the city planet Coruscant, to name, to name just two examples. You see it in Valyrian, you see it, even though Valyrian is based on an earlier source. Just the look of that future, we could call it cyberpunk, of course, but I mean, cyberpunk is a form that comes from literature. The flying cars, the neons, the, 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 the rain, the, the kind of post-punk citizens, the crowds, all of those aspects come from Blade Runner. So I, I think visually it's been huge. It's, like, it's one of those films that you can almost, even if you haven't seen Blade Runner, you kind of like get a feeling for what it's like, if yeah. you know what I mean? Like you could go back to it and it'd be something you're already familiar with. Like it's that pervasive. And I think it's going to like video games and stuff as well. Like the amount of video games I've heard referred to as Blade Runner-esque, it's like, it's so pervasive. Yeah, like if you haven't seen it, you kind of have seen it. And say if you hadn't seen it, but you saw it this year, which also ties in with the idea of memory, actually. It would almost, you might almost think, well, have I seen this film before? Yeah. As you say, it's that kind of tech noir, that kind of future noir. 
it's become, you're right, video games, absolutely, and I'm sure in television as well, and just in sort of in, in visual art, in science fiction based art. So you'd, you'd almost think you'd seen them, which is interesting because it might, it might seem strangely familiar to you if you, if you watched it for the first time. Again, interesting in terms of what we remember, what we think we remember. Um, you mentioned cyberpunk there. Now, this uh, film's the vision that we're talking about, this um, vision of the future that's become so influential, a big part of it is the Asian culture and imagery. Previously, I did a podcast uh, on Neuromancer where we talked a bit about, obviously, that's the other, other kind of, almost, these are almost, it's a, quite a nice companion for Neuromancer, actually, because these are, I think, almost like the two founding texts, to use the word in its broader term, of cyberpunk. And we talked a bit about how that also had, like, a very strong Asian culture. I just wonder if you had any um, any thoughts as to why Asian cultures and imagery is such a key part of that vision? Well, it's both from the 80s aren't they? Blade Runner's 82 and Neuromancer's 84. Mm-hmm. Partly I think it's about strangeness, things which are kind of, they're, they're from our world obviously, but they're kind of like sideways, you know. Perhaps Japan in the 80s in particular, even now, seems like it's slightly in the future, a, slight, a slightly alternate version of like American Britain. You know, it's got similar things, but they're kind of slightly skewed. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it does seem to be a few years ahead. I think particularly in the 1980s, that distinction would be even more striking. And also, 1980s, um, I believe there would have been a kind of a, a fear or hope or a promise, certainly a sense of, of the rise of Japanese economy and technology. Mm-hmm. Video gaming, for instance, you know, the rise of Japan as a really, really powerful force in terms of, yeah, in terms of technology, in terms of neon and that kind of city. It sort of looks a bit like Tokyo. It's almost like Tokyo yeah. moved across to the west coast of to, to Los Angeles. So I think it's partly about Something which is almost like our world, but, but strange and removed and projected into the future. And also, I think it would have seemed quite quite feasible that there would be an increased Asian influence on the west coast of America, because you know they're actually relatively close. You know, that's, if you if you fly west from LA, you do you do reach Japan. So it's like a sort of futuristic, strange neighbour, like a sort of um, an alternate universe, alternate version of. Mm, but perhaps as you hinted there mapping a kind of you know, anxiety about the power of you know japan as a rising power you know challenging or like taking over like america American yeah. yeah i think it might might be a bit of fear yeah i mean they are kind of dystopias aren't they right but what could yeah another parallel with neuromancer in blade runner in the way it kind of draws on hard-boiled literature or like film noir you know deckard's Obviously got the kind of classic hard-boiled uh, detective coat and uh, he's got that kind of disposition of, of the hard-boiled detective. I've read quite a bit of hard-boiled fiction. I don't really know film noir particularly well. Are there obvious like visual techniques that are borrowed from film noir? And moving on for that, it would seem to be more than a coincidence that both Neuromancer and Blade Runner have, have borrowed from that kind of tradition. So is there anything about noir that you think it makes is, is relevant to this sci-fi world of corporate domination and high technology and so on? Yeah, sure. Uh, we, we technically have to call uh, Blade Runner neo-noir, I think, like new noir. Because one of the key aspects of film noir was based on it being black and white. Like uh, the dark was very dark and the white was very white. A lot of it, one, one of the key visual aspects is that shadow. It's very contrasting and often playing around with things like the bars of the bars of, uh, banisters, bars of prisons, the kind of shapes created by those old-style fans, shadows falling over people's faces, whereas Blade Runner, of course, is colour, but the Bradbury building is really, really shot like a noir. Any of the scenes in the Bradbury building, mm. very kind of smoky. They're, they're really, they're kind of blue, really. So it's not black and white, but it's very, very blue tinted. And there's a lot of play with stark shadows and silhouettes. That's a key aspect of noir. 
another thing about noir is the urban environment. You know, the, the hard-boiled city. The detective is that kind of character because he moves in that kind of city. And actually, Los Angeles was the, the home of the classic, the classic noir yeah, sure. film by Dublin Dimity. So I think Ridley Scott said he wanted to make a film which was, what did he say? It's like set, set 40 years in the future, but in the style of 40 years in the past, which would make sense, wouldn't it? It's like 42 and it's almost mm. 40 years in the future. The, the femme fatale, the dangerous woman, kind of like Rachel. She looks like, um, Rachel looks like a, a heroine of noir, but doesn't act that way. Yeah. Anyway, in terms of the, the thematic thing, noir was sort of, noir was post-war, the original cycle of noir. It's, it's about anxiety and psychological trauma, but it's not really about capitalism so much, but it's about the original noir films are definitely about uncertainty, psychological ambiguity and uh, grey morality. And I think Neuromancer and Blade Runner plays playing to that the, the lack of a clear-cut hero, things like that. Mm. So that fits quite nicely into, works quite nicely into some of the themes of like post-humanism and identity and so on, if this kind of, um, I don't know what you call it, like existential angst that Noir yeah, has. exactly that. Yeah, exactly that. It was, it was a time where even French philosophy started to become influential, exactly. It's like, you know, questioning identity, questioning right and wrong. It's about, original Noir was about post-war uncertainty. And also in terms of gender roles, which have become a bit flipped during the war. And that's why you've got these strong independent women. And often the, uh, the detective, the guy, is often a bit of a sack, you know, a bit of a patsy gets drawn into a conspiracy. And he's not the one in control. Mm. And that sort of happens with Deckard as well. Even though he's the investigator, it doesn't take long before really he's, he's the hunted. He's not really in control of the situation. He's hunting the replicants, but soon he becomes the target himself. Yeah, he's, he's never really in power from the beginning, is he? Because he's kind of, he's like forced into, like he's hauled in by the police, like arrested and told like, yeah, you are going to do this. So Yeah, he has no choice. That's right. No choice, pal. Well, let's move on to talk a bit about the sort of post, post-human theme then. Do you think part of what kind of made this film continue to be relevant, like continue to be, um, you know, people keep going back to it and people keep people keep talking about it. Do you think part of that is the way that these, these post-human themes tap into the and an anxiety, like a continued anxiety, which we've had for years and years, which emerging in different ways about like automation and AI. Yeah, I think that's partly. I think partly it's a very rich and complex film just to look at and, and to study, and I think it still has really interesting things. Yeah. I think the theme of AI and technology, Blade Runner 2049 picks up on that as well, and the fact that we've got a sequel demonstrates that. I think there is this kind of, well, it's not about an anxiety, but it's certainly a curiosity. There's certainly a sense of wonder at the moment about the role of artificial intelligence in our society. And we've actually got things which are approaching replicants in a way in our homes, you know, Google Home Assistant and mm. Alexa and so on, you know, machines that we can talk to, mm. which, you know, developing quite a lot of power and control. If they decided to do things differently, they could, they could lock someone in their house and turn off all the lights and turn up the heat, couldn't they? Turn up the volume really loud. So we are increasingly giving artificial intelligence a role, I think, in our homes. Or like driverless cars within a few years. So yeah, these themes are increasingly relevant. Absolutely, yeah. I find this idea of like premium technology that can like lock my doors and stuff a bizarre. Like I, don't, I don't know why you would want. It, it just seems like we all know that all our electronic devices can get like hacked and taken over, yeah. and, like turned against us. So I don't know why you would voluntarily 
connect like this idea of connecting everything up into your giving your home to the internet just seems like a terrible idea to me it's like these people haven't watched any science fiction <laughs> yeah. that's like skynet and terminator we've been shown in films for years what can happen if we give too much power to a single computer hub and then it's being advertised as the thing to do get it get it all like the smart house you know get it all connected up one thing goes wrong you're right it doesn't have to be artificial intelligence a human being could hack into that you'd be in prison yeah um so with the with the um nexus robots in the film so i expect most people have, have seen this film but I'll, I'll briefly explain for anyone who hasn't the film is essentially about there are uh, robots uh, like nexus androids effectively that are very difficult to distinguish from humans they look like humans they generally um, behave like humans and they are used as slaves for like dangerous tasks off world and occasionally some of them go rogue and try to escape and then um, people blade runners as the type of the film are tasked with hunting them down and killing them um, which is what happens in this film there's some nexus robots that have gone rogue and the main character deckard played by harrison ford is tasked with, with hunting them down so how do you think the film wants you to feel about the nexus robots in this film because sometimes i felt it was um pushing in different directions on that mm. well batty is very charismatic i think it's hard not to kind of feel captivated by batty why batty Pedro look how was the, the leader of the replicant gang but they're very glamorous they're very powerful they're very athletic you know they're kind of acrobatic they are the most striking if you compare them to the humans like deckard frost the, the cop brian you know they're very very glamorous a lot of the humans we see are, are, are pretty dull mm. so it's certainly hard not to to admire them I, I think our eyes are certainly on them when they're on the screen uh well i think the film is kind of asking us like we said about noir who is right here who's the hero here is deckard the hero deckard's pretty violent and brutal himself and he's hunting people down well they're not really people and that's the question isn't it yeah. uh, is he just re- is he retiring robots or is he killing people who have sentience is he brutally killing a woman by shooting her in the back from behind as she's running through a glass window you know things like that so you know we, we ask who who are we really rooting for and boy batty at the end has a famous last speech uh when he's, he's dying in the rain which is much more poetic and eloquent than anything deckard deckard ever says oh i should note of course in, in the 82 version there's a voiceover which they took over took off in the subsequent ones which is also a very noir thing to have the yeah. world really hard boiled voiceover, which I think is one reason they added it. But um Deckard's voiceover when we do hear it and Deckard's dialogue, it's not really very inspiring. So Batty gives a speech about uh, he's seen incredible things across across the galaxy, things that Deckard will never see. And how all those moments will be lost in time like tears and rain. So he's also he's not just better looking, more powerful, you know, more acrobatic, more athletic. He, he's also much more of a poet. Mm. So who is the hero? Is the hero the guy who's hunting the city, trying to execute people? Or are the heroes the people who really just want to live and get by? Mm. It's interesting the way the film kind of, like at some points it depicts these replicants as, as monsters. I think particularly Leon, who's kind of yeah. the stupid one for, for want of a better description. But he's, he's depicted as like a crazy monster. There's a bit where he's like putting, stacking artificial eyes on top of this genetic engineer while they're kind of um, torturing him. And like he, there's like a brutality with which he, attacks Deckard like he feels like a robot in the way he goes about attacking him but then he's also he's got these photos that are really important to him and he wants to you know he, there's some sympathy there in the in the way mm. that he, yeah, yeah, he wants yeah. to get also the the way that the way that all the the humans treat them in the film like one of the first scenes is, is Leon being interrogated and like as soon as he 
um, this is an interrogation to like try and work out like who's a replicant, which they're just doing. They're working for all the employees of, of the company, like trying, trying to find them. But as soon as he comes into the room, the guy is kind of like dismissive of him. You know, he's just trying to do this test. And it's like the entourage talking to him. And he's like, like, he doesn't treat him like a human. All the humans in this film, I think, pretty much don't interact with anyone else in a human way. The replicants, even though we see them being like at times murderous and kind of scary they're also the only ones who act like act like humans i think mm. apart, apart yeah. from perhaps jf sebastian who's like the is, is the one perhaps human who's not horrible mm. yeah there's a number of ideas there you're right that leon isn't glamorous i've forgotten about leon leon is yeah he's the dumb one he's just a kind of worker there might be a sort of class thing in there that um mm, sure. you know leon leon is working class and it's like uh, the reason the interrogator holds and treats him bad is because he doesn't know what Turtle is, you know, so he's getting frustrated. I guess to be fair, Holden, the interrogator, is a working man too. He's a cop doing a job, and I guess he's done loads and loads of interviews that day and uh, getting frustrated with it. But Batty and um, Chris and Zora clearly have some affection between when uh, when Roy Batty is breaking Deckard's finger, he says, This is for Zora and this is for Chris. So clearly, the, the robots, the replicants, have loyalty and maybe even love between them. Whereas Deckard, he's like divorced and he says his ex wife called him sushi cold fish. So he's he's a cold character himself. You know, doesn't have doesn't have friends. He's a human being, has no mates, you know. Yeah. There's also the, as you mentioned, the job that Deckard's being asked to perform is, is kind of. Uh, it's not clear like how you should feel about it, or, or even how he feels about it. I think the most the most obvious one is the I can't remember her name, but the replicant who's who's doing the dancing with the snake. Oh yeah, Zora. Yeah, Zora. Sorry, yeah. So, I mean, he he's making he like he kind of talks his way into a dressing room, pretending to be like an artist representative, something worried about her exploitation. He's got this. You've got this fake concern of the supposed good guy. With this woman, he's kind of screwing up her face. Like he's he's acting like he cares, worried that she's exploited. She's kind of got this look, like, of course I'm exploited. Like, mm, can't you see? And obviously, she's always been exploited. She's been a, as an extra. She's she's been a slave. But like the way the scene where she's escaping, like you can see, you know, the fear in her in her face as she tries to get away. And as you said, Deckard like shooting her in the in the back. I think it's perhaps one of the most obvious scenes in the film when you're being asked to like question what's happening and you know the rights of what Decker's being asked to do, and you kind of I think you see his he's questioning it of it as well. I don't know if he's questioning it actually, but I think it's true. There's a lot of questions there for the audience, like um you know about class as well and about gender because she was a slave and now she's working as a stripper, you know, like mm. so yeah, she's always been exploited. Like when he says, oh, people might come and try and drill holes in the wall to look at a woman change and she's like well you know she's kind of she's not she's so used to it because she, she you know she works in a strip bar so she's not at all faced by him coming in there curving around her, her dressing room and yeah he seems like a pretty sneaky creepy guy i don't know what that i think decker feels he's just decker feels he's doing a job and that replicants if replicants go rogue they need to be destroyed i think he says at one point replicants are like any other technology either a benefit or a hazard and so you know if they go wrong mm. They've got to be wiped out, like you throw out a toaster or, or something. So I don't know if he does really feel a great great deal about it, but I think we sympathise with her a lot more than he does. Yeah. I suppose well, he's, he seems to be effect, affected by it in some way, but it's perhaps more like, like the stress of... <laughs> Of yeah. having to perform the task and like being worried about coming to harm himself is perhaps more what he's 
yeah, that's true. More what he's 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 worried about. Deckard's an interesting one to talk about because obviously, as I mentioned, like the, the a lot of the human characters in this aren't sympathetic. Um, the ones we've already mentioned, Tyrell, who's the guy who's created the replicants, who's kind of a horrible, attached, odd fi- figure who seems to you know lacking any kind of empathy or emotion, but. Deckard's also um, fits into that kind of idea. This is, you know, not not being particularly human, not caring. The way he reacts to Rachel uh, as as well when she tells her that she's a replicant, he does it in a rather uncaring way. Again, for anyone who doesn't know, Re- Rachel is a, a replicant, but hasn't been told that she's got fake memories. Deckard just kind of tells it to her in the most brutal way but then he's um, also as it implied in the director's cut not the original version it's, it's implied that he's a replica yeah. as well so he yeah, kind of right. bridges both these worlds yeah he's very very cruel to, to Rachel really he just tells her plain out that she's you know this is not real and her memories are fake and then um you know this kind of love scene which is quite disturbing as well maybe more disturbing than the death scene very very forceful yeah violent really towards her in- basically sexual assault I don't think in the terms of the film it's meant to be interpreted that way. I remember a very, it reminds me of a scene in The, the Running Man where like, oh, okay. Arnold Schwarzenegger like holds down a, a woman. And yeah, like, yeah, I yeah. think that's kind of, it's, to me that feels like a 80s like sexist power thing. Yeah. You know, they really want it and like you hold them down and show your power and that's meant to be romantic in some way. Yeah, I wonder if it was maybe, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of excusing it here a little bit. I actually think it's I mean, it looks terrible. I mean, it's really hard to think of Deckard as a hero after that. But I wonder if it was, in a way, supposed to be in the style of 1940s cinema, where, you know, men would, like, grab women and do this hard, forceful kiss, and the women would sort of realise they actually wanted it, or maybe the women would stop pretending they didn't want it. So that's that's one thing we can say about it. I mean, it's kind of, yeah, it is kind of 80s, and perhaps the 80s were closer to the 40s in in that respect. But I I think it's hard to to watch that and sympathise with Deckard. He would certainly lose it at that point. But yeah, in terms of the film, Deckard and Rachel are supposed to be in a romantic relationship. So, I don't know, but she's a robot anyway. So it's hard to know what to make of it. I, I kind of think if we watch it, it's almost like he's programming her to, to want it. He says things and she repeats them. So. Yeah. That's that, quite disturbing in that respect. Yeah. He's kind of, he's telling her what, he's telling her what to say. Yeah, it's quite, it's very disturbing. To me, I felt like the film wanted you to interpret it as a romantic moment, which obviously mm. it's, it's not. I think it seemed alright at the time. Um, I don't remember any reviewers at the time picking it out, but times have changed, right? Yeah, thankfully. Um, what do you make of the motive of the eye? Because that's something that appears a lot in this film. Like, that's one of the first shots. There's the, the test we mentioned to see who, where you test if someone's, is a replica which involves like uh focusing in on the eye as they respond to questions so we see the eye a lot in that context um, there's a lot of gouging out of eyes as well yeah i just wondered because uh, I, d- I didn't really know what to make of that motif so i just wondered if you had any thoughts on that i think one thing we could say about it is, is like a, a pun really eye and eye you know eye identity eye is meaning the self um the reason we partly have a focus on the eyes is yeah within the world of the film the eye is one way that we can tell replicants from humans through the point comp test but also uh, replicants have defective eyes more like cats and there's for instance one very short shot where Deckard's eyes are also reflected so I think partly the eye is a motive well the eye is a motive I think partly because of that part of that eye and eye eye as in me and also because it literally is in the film a way that they can tell replicants from humans and that's really the central question of the film what does it, what does it mean to be human what does it mean to be eye so that being the window to the the soul thing and kind of yeah. the the way they're trying to look into the eye with 
technology like they're trying to discover humanity and the eye like a soul free technology if you see what i mean which is kind of a perverse way of, yeah that's right kind of a perverse way of determining humanity that's true i think you mentioned uh the, the, the film being in, in many ways of, about memory there's a lot of bits of people looking at photos taking photos sharing photos um rachel gets given photos to um you know support the, the fake memory she's been given so um do you have any sense as to what the the film is trying to make us think about in, in terms of memory well i think it's all about memory well i say it's about identity it's also about memory it's about can photos prove memories because the photographs are actually well leon's photographs he's a robot he keeps photographs even though the replicants have a four-year lifespan rachel has this photograph of she says it's herself and her mother but obviously it's, it's not because she's also a replicant Tyrell's niece and the photograph also moves in a, in a way that it shouldn't and with Leon's photograph Deckard puts it in his machine the Esper and can roam through it and explore it so I think it's partly about what we can trust can the photographs provide evidence you know in our in our own real life we use photographs even more than we did in the 1980s now I mean Facebook for instance comes up with like on this day you were doing that Facebook now serves as our memory when we do anything now tend to anyway upload it so people can see it you know you hear some people saying so oh, i didn't really count unless you put it on social media some people actually do things you know take photos of meals and holidays and that just to prove they've done them and that it wouldn't really count for them in the same way unless they were taking a photograph of it and, and showing it to other people it wouldn't count they just done it by themselves and looked at it with their eyes so i think blade runner is about those sort of ideas which are again like artificial intelligence they're, they're accelerated now the way we use photographs to substitute for memory but but do they really guarantee memories? Because in Blade Runner, they're actually they're actually written as fake memories. Yeah, there's something interesting about the way we are sort of augmenting our memories with these technologies. Like you said, the way people people upload their memories, but obviously they they choose certain things to upload, and yeah. we know that memory is is unreliable. So when we go back and we have these like augmented memories. We have these pictures that that we're painting that uh, we can now basically like create create like a memory um, in a using technology in a way we couldn't. Yeah, before. we create false memories. They say about photographs, don't lose your memories. You know, memories are important. And on Facebook and social media, it's like you know, mm. check out check out your memories. And Facebook every so often says, you know, like celebrate your friendship with this person you've been friends for five years, and shows you a bunch of photographs. So those memories come to replace anything we might. So I said those memories. I mean those photographs. It's funny I'm using interchangeable. Those photographs come to replace our personal history because you know if you see them often enough, that's that's what you're going to remember. And obviously, we're not going to remember the things we didn't take photographs of. So yeah, photographs, images have become in a very real way, I think, a document of our our history and much much more than it was when the film came out. So in a way, yeah. it's pretty prophetic. You know? and is it, obviously, it's an important question when it comes into thinking about what makes you human which i think is part of what blade runner is trying to make us think about is that even if your memories are like fake or or wrong you 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 still have them and they still help to construct your identity in some way because like even like rachel's told all this is completely fake your memories are fake but she still has those memories and they still she still exists and she still has them and that's still her identity yeah Although, I, I, funnily enough, Rachel, being the intelligence sensitive one, gives the photograph to Deckard, whereas Leon keeps the photographs safe in a drawer. So the moral there is that we are being like the stupid robot, Leon. We're saying that Leon was the dumb one, right? Yeah. But we're the ones who keep who keep photographs. 
Rachel is clever enough that when Decker says, you know, those are fake, she actually gives him that photograph. Um, you know, she must do because he's, he's the one holding it when, once she's left. So she, do, she doesn't seem to need it anymore. She accepts that photographs can no longer guarantee the past. But what we do is look at the photographs if they do, like stupid robot Leon. So there we are. Do you think it's kind of a, like a moment of like freedom there almost in that she's, her identity yeah. is basically, she is constructed and her identity is constructed by Tyrell Corporation and she's owned by Tyrell Corporation and in like casting off that memory she's almost casting off those bonds and like committing to creating her own identity kind of thing. It does seem, it, it seems that way in a way, apart from the fact that she then sort of commits to, to Deckard. So I suppose we could see it as sort of dumping mm. the father and getting together with, you know, romantic yeah. partner. It, w- it would be much more independent if it wasn't for that thing where Deckard says, you know, say this, and she says that, and then she goes off driving with him at the end. Yeah. So I suppose what we could say is she got a cast off, like in a wedding, you know, like your father takes you up the aisle and marries you to a man. I, I, she liberates herself from Tyrell, I'll say that, but then she sort of decides to imprison herself to, to Deckard. So. Yeah. But she accepts that she's a replicant, I think. She, she accepts it straight away. So, you know. mm. so I wanted to talk about the city and Blade Runner, which is obviously a big part of it. And as, as you mentioned before, a big part of what the influence that, uh, that the Blade Runner's had. One aspect of it is it quite obviously dramatises growing inequality in a relatively obvious, unsettled way. <laughs> like you have this big, lavish building of Tyrell and then you have decaying, empty shell of a building that J.F. Sebastian lives in. Um, I've forgotten the name of the building. Uh, that's the Bradbury, yeah. Yeah, that's it. Bradbury, yeah. That's one aspect of it. But the, the kind of futures, the future view that we've tended to have of the city has been this dystopic kind of vision that, that Blade Runner has. I mean, do you think this is kind of a fearful, a fearful vision of the city that's kind of laid down a template for the way we've that a lot of science fiction media has thought about the city in the future. I think it has laid down the template, but in a way, I don't think it's such a bad city. I mean, you know, it looks quite cool, doesn't it, really? I don't, I don't think we watch Blade Runner and think, oh, I wouldn't want to live there. It looks, uh, I read one article which said one thing Blade Runner does is give Los Angeles a downtown, which it's never had, because Los Angeles is just a, well, certainly the article is saying, big sprawling mass without any structure, which is mostly suburbs. It's got no high-rise buildings, but Blade Runner looks like quite a good place to go. It's like Decker's just walking down the street. There's loads of sort of street food. There's very vibrant culture. It's very crowded. It's very busy. Mm. You know, there's loads of clubs and restaurants, and he can just sit on the street, and people know him, right? He goes up to the noodle bar, and people sort of seem to, to recognise him. So it's got a sense of community. Quite I don't think we really watch... Yeah, we don't really watch Blade Runner. I think now I wouldn't want to live there, apart from the fact that it's raining and busy. But, and obviously, it's got a lot of inequality. Yeah, I don't fancy living in J.F. Sebastian's house, but but yeah. No, apart from that, yeah, no, they, that's true. It's, it's interesting, though, to suppose and think. I've never, really, I haven't really thought about the actual L.A. and this kind of this, like this place of cars. Yeah, like you say, all spread out, like no community. Whereas, yeah, Blade Runner does have does have a kind of energetic, live yeah, feel in parts. Well, it's not really anything like Los Angeles, that's the thing. I mean, it's called Los Angeles, but it was going to be New York at one point. The book is set in San Francisco, so it's not really like L.A. Mm. Um, L.A. doesn't really have that kind of power and building. But the Deckard apartment isn't bad either, you know. Deckard's got his own flat. He's just a, he's a lowly cop. He, he lives he lives in a nice place. He's got a balcony. Uh, you can go out and look over the city. I think the city actually looks really exciting. And another thing they've got is flying cars, right? Yeah. I mean, people always go, what happened in the future? Where's my jetpack? Where's my flying car? Yeah, people and, still um, want them. 
They, well, they exist in Blade Runner, so actually I think the city in Blade Runner... Uh, OK, there are, there are run-down buildings, mm. but someone, a working-class cop like Deckard actually has a pretty nice apartment, so I don't think it's so bad. Mm. What about... I do think that there are some, some scenes, though, that seem to kind of paint a fearful version of the city, so I'm thinking in particular... I'm thinking of the scene where I've forgotten her name again. Oh, Zora. Zora is running from Deckard. Like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, I mean, you could interpret that as simply being about that scene, but there's a lot of cutting to uh, different angles, which like kind of makes the the city seem confusing and like daunting. And you hear these different, um, all these different languages, like it's merging between these different um, dialogue tracks of all different languages over the top. It's really there's all these different angles and darkness. There's a few few other places where it does that as well. I think where not not so much the, the quick cutting, but you'll get an angle where the the kind of contours of the city are hard to interpret. So I, I sometimes get the feel that there's it's the city is being presented as this kind of like disorientating, overwhelming place. Well, that's true, but then I mean that's like an action chase scene. So I think it is presented as disorientating. Yeah, I mean it's it's very busy and crowded. But and that scene is, but then that's because Deckard is trying to like find someone in a crowd so I think that's partly because because it's an, an action sequence there's a sense of confusion for the audience but then Deckard can find his way around very easily they've got lots of different languages and cultures but someone like Deckard and his partner Gap can speak the different languages well enough and they they can understand them so I think to the characters it, it, it feels like home yeah to us it feels strange but I think to the characters in the city it actually seems like a good environment How do you read that climactic scene of Roy Batty dying and, and making this speech um, there's obviously like a Christ motif there as well like he's got a nail through his hand and you know lets the the dove off um i wonder that how do you how do you read that is it trying to say anything definitive about you know replicants or humanity i think it's trying to suggest it yeah i don't think i think one of the good things about played one is it doesn't really say anything definitive but i think it's certainly suggesting biblical parallels there and that batty is a kind of you know an angel not not a messiah but um you know like jesus who came moved among men and then was was not appreciated to say the least and, and was crucified and then ascended again it's like you know when a higher being comes among us we're going we're gonna to persecute and bully them like the, the nexus six the replicants are kind of more like you could see them as the next stage in humanity they're they're more human than human Tyrell says they're superior actually they're better than us and how do we treat them when they display any sort of independence or autonomy we hunt them down and we don't even call it killing we call it retirement so yeah i don't think it's being explicit but i think ridley scott does this fair bit in his films with messianic spiritual imagery i think it's certainly i think those overtones are certainly deliberate i mean you could even say it's quite heavy-handed the nail in the hand and yeah. the dove like where did you get the, where did you get a dove i mean yeah. we've never seen a dove in the film before I don't think it, I don't think it's spelling it out, but it's kind of saying that here is a superior being that was persecuted by mankind. Mm, I think, as you say, certainly there's definitely always ambiguity in this film. Like any any way you look at it, any sort of aspect to it, there's always like the potential to find different things in there. Uh, final question: I think people might often think of of Blade Runner as presenting quite a, a bleak, pessimistic of 
a version version of the future. Do you see it that way, or do you think it has some kind of like utopian drive in it? I think it's kind of exciting. It looks like an exciting place. It would depend who you are, really, wouldn't it? I mean, whether it's just an interesting question about utopia. It kind of depends who you are. Mm. So, like you were saying, for J.F. Sebastian, he's got an aging disease and he's living in derelict apartment. For someone like Tyrell, you know, he's living a, he's living a life. Yeah, you know, he, he walks around in a, in a dressing gown and sleeps in a bed like a kind of pope in a pyramid. Yeah, Deckard and the cops are sort of in the middle, and the the replicants would be doing fine and getting on okay, I think. And apart from the fact they're hunted down for being sort of for racial reasons in a way, you know, because they're considered to be they're considered to be inhuman and they're treated like slaves. So I, I think this is going to be my answer to that. About and I would probably say that for all utopias and dystopias, it depends who you are. If it's good or if it's good or bad, it depends on your class and your gender and your race as well. I mean, I think it's, it's we should also notice that it's all Asian people on the street, not living on the street, but all the street culture is Asian. Whereas Tyrell, of course, is, is white. So you've got a white guy living the, the best life and you've got the working class schlubs kind of making do in the middle. And all the street culture with all its vibrancy, but also I suppose it's, it's impermanent too. The Asian people don't have shops, they have stalls. And if we want to read replicant as a race, then there's a big racial aspect in there. So it depends who you are, because women don't have a great time either in it. I don't think we even see any female cops. Most of the women we see are like strippers. So yeah. It's a utopia depending on, on your position, you know, on your privilege. Yeah, well, people often say science fiction is, is about the present. So there you go, rich white guys. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> doing well, that's I right. don't say, yeah, that pretty much spells it out. Yeah. Okay, well, um, thank you very much for joining me, Will. Oh, that's a pleasure. Thank, thank you for having me, yeah. Uh, is there anything you wanted to point people towards of, of yours? Uh, I had a book, I edited a book called The Blade Runner Experience came out in 2006, I think. Uh, that's my main book on Blade Runner. If anyone wants to read that, you might find it interesting. Yeah, so there you go. If you're into Blade Runner, then uh, yeah, check that out. Okay, thank you very much, Will. Thank you. Thanks a lot. So that's the end of my conversation with Will. Hope you've enjoyed it. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if so. And if you could take a minute to give me a rating or review on iTunes or whatever, I don't have too many, and uh, it would be a big help. So uh, if you could take a moment to do that, that would be fantastic. As I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, if you'd like to support the podcast and help me keep doing this, you can do that at patreon.com slash utopian horizons. I think I mentioned everything I need to mention at the beginning of the podcast, so I don't think there's much more to say here. As I said, uh, next episode will be probably Man in the High Castle and Philip K. Dick. Please, any questions or thoughts on that on that book, email me, Utopian Horizons Pod, tweet me at Utopian Horizons. It'd be cool to have some stuff that I could uh, read out or questions to engage with on the episode. So that would be cool. And yeah, let me know about stuff for next year. Let me know if you think the Google Doc thing will be a good idea. And uh, next year we should be having Bioshock Infinite, Ghost in the Shell, some more guests that I've got um, slotted in and stuff that you suggest to me, hopefully. So yeah, uh, until the next episode, thank you for listening.